0: All right, good morning, everyone. i want to invite you this morning to uh, open up your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We return to 2 Peter chapter 3 and this morning we'll be finishing our text we've been working through over the last couple of weeks, verses 1 through 10. This is really part 3 of a mini-series within a series But let me uh, begin this morning by rereading these with you once again. Second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse one. Here now is the reading of God's living and infallible word. Peter writes, "This is now beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets in the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. As the Apostle Paul sat chained in a Roman prison, he penned his final letter to his dear brother in the faith, Timothy, and uh, this letter, 2 Timothy, uh, would be his last as he was but months, days, possibly even hours away from martyrdom. And as he was carried along by the Spirit and thought about the words that he would write to end this letter, the great Apostle Paul expressed the confident hope that every believer has. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, he identified Christians as those who love his appearing. True believers love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our hope, that is our joy, that is the great climax of redemptive history. All true believers anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. And over the last two weeks, we noted that when he returns, he will gather his own to himself He will judge the unbelieving world and He will establish the eternal kingdom. This is, believers, blessed hope for us. 2 Peter 3.13 says, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That series of events is the great anticipation or the great culmination of the Christian faith. But for those who love their lust, and for those who love their sin, the return of Christ means something entirely different, doesn't it? The Bible describes it as a great day of wrath, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of judgment when all the earth will be devoured. The Old Testament prophets prophets often refer to as the great day of the Lord. In fact, that's what Peter calls it here in verse 10, the day of the Lord. And so Satan and his false teachers of 2 Peter recognize just how important this doctrine is to the church when believers actually live with anticipation of Christ's promised return. They demonstrate a spiritual zeal and an enthusiasm recognizing that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so we are now surprised then that Satan uses false teachers to deny the return of Christ and any form of future judgment. Now when Peter comes to this third and final chapter, he confronts the false teachers' lies and the denial about the coming of the Lord. And over the last two weeks, we looked at their arguments against it. And then... Last week, we looked at Peter's arguments for it, and we ended last week in verses 9 and 10. So just to reintroduce this debate that these people are having, let me just sort of sum up by way of review what we've already covered. The false teacher's arguments are articulated in verse 4, when they say, Where is the promise of his coming? And essentially what they're saying is, where is Jesus? Where is he? I thought you said he'd be coming back. Don't you think if God was going to judge the earth that he would certainly have come back by now? Now, the text reveals that their argument follows essentially three forms. First we said is the argument from ridicule. Ridicule. And in verse three, it says that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. And And that's what we see here, sarcasm, mocking, demeaning, belittling. The day of the Lord is just some sort of anti-intellectual nonsense. And this is an emotional ploy. It's to be used on people who have been eagerly anticipating the Lord's return. They've been waiting and waiting and just yet, Jesus hasn't come and you know, the first century, life's been difficult. Life's been very difficult. Persecution is very real for these believers. And we're not surprised then that many of them would have been discouraged. And so these false teachers really just seize on this opportunity. And like a a bully, they come along and they mock their disappointment. And they mock their discouragement with ridicule of, where is the promise of his coming? And then secondly, we saw their argument from immorality. Immorality. And beloved, this is the false teacher's true motive for this is what's compelling their argument to essentially adopt this false theology. You see the reason why they deny the Lord's return is not because they can disprove it scripturally. The reason they deny the future judgment is because they love their sin, And they want an eschatology that fits their immorality. And we see this at the end of verse 3 when it says, They were really following after their own lusts. The real reason they deny the future judgment is because the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And they want no ultimate accountability. And so what they want to do is develop an eschatology that fits their immorality. And then the false teachers' third argument is in the form of uniformity. And this is the philosophy of the false teachers. Notice what it says in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And essentially their argument is this, there has never been a judgment before, therefore there never will be a judgment. In fact, everything continues on just as it always has from the beginning of creation. Everything works in this absolute, um, consistent uniformity of cause and effects and loss. And it's just a slow, continual, unchanging process of evolution. There's no God, there's no judgment. Everything just continues on as it has from the very beginning. So in verses three through four, you have an emotional argument, a a moral argument, and then you have their philosophy or an intellectual argument of uniformity. And of course, to make these arguments, you have to reject the Bible, (laughs) which they do, which they do, obviously. They did then and they do now. Liberal uh, theologians even today in uh, the universities claim these Verses are, are mythological. You can't take them literally. Uh, in fact, they say we should just take them right out of the Bible. No such thing as judgment. No such thing as hell. And so, that was the false teacher's threefold argument against the return of Christ and the great day of the Lord. Let's look at Peter's argument for the return. And he begins with number one, Scripture. Scripture. Verse 2. He says, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophets. That's the Old Testament, verse 2. And Peter says, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And then that's the New Testament. And Peter was right, wasn't he? Last week we read the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophets. We read about the catastrophic, fiery judgment like this world has never before seen. These were warnings from the prophet Isaiah all the way to the book of Malachi, from the beginning of the old prophets all the way to the end. Prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all echo a time when God's wrath will be poured out in a great day of judgment. So that's the argument from Scripture. So, you can scoff at it all you want, but the Bible teaches it. Number two is the argument from history. And in verse five, Peter says, For when they maintain this, this what? This view of uniformity, this view that everything just keeps going along as it always has, in verses three through four, that there has never been any judgments, therefore there never will be any, therefore there never will be any judgments. But Peter says, when they maintain this, there escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So how can they say that God has never divinely intervened and judged anyone before? They can't. Peter says it must have escaped their notice. (laughs) This is a very um, kind translation by the translators it actually means that they shut their eyes to the facts the old King James says they are willingly ignorant of the flood in other words their argument from uniformity is ridiculous it's a deliberate rejection of the truth they choose that belief simply because they want no accountability for their sin not because history verifies it in any way or the scriptures And then there's the third argument, which is from eternity. Eternity. In uh, verse 8, Peter uh, paraphrases Psalm 90, verse 4, where we get actually a rare glimpse into Moses praying to the Lord as he praises the one who's not only formed the earth, but he is the God of everlasting to everlasting. Notice how Peter uses this verse from Psalm 90 to make his argument here in verse 8. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The general principle that Peter lays out for us is that we must always remember that we cannot by our, our very nature understand fully the mind of God and not only that one of the things that we have to realize is that God does not operate in um, a timetable like ours he operates on an, an eternal basis you cannot confine God to um, human time and space and matter though he intervenes and he speaks into that time space matter Isaiah 55 8-9 through 9, Says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's really only against the background of eternity that things appear in their true proportions and assume their real value. And so the argument from eternity is that it may appear to you that God is delaying his coming, but remember that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So God is not late. God is not delaying. He is always on time. And then number four. Number four is where we left off last week, and we started introducing the argument from the character of God. The character of God. We see this in verse 9. The mockers say, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter, in the culmination of his argument, says this. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This, beloved, is the character of God. Peter says the delay is not a delay of indifference. It's not a delay of distraction. It's not a delay of impotence. It is a delay of patience. Patience. Now, this is a very important verse that we need to understand correctly, so I want us to consider it here for a moment. First, notice just how it begins. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow about His promise." Now this is a very significant statement. Jesus had made his followers a promise. He said that he was coming back. All right? But at the time that Peter was writing this, it had already been nearly 30 years. since Jesus had walked on this earth, and the, some of the believers were beginning to wonder, where is he? Is he coming back? Why hasn't he coming back? They, they were so full of hope for his return. Many of them believed that it would be in their lifetime. Even Paul indicates that when in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17 he says, we who are alive and who will remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. He doesn't say you who are alive or he doesn't say they will always be with the Lord. He says we as he includes himself. And so There were just a lot of people that truly believed Jesus was coming back soon. They they anticipated his return was going to be in their lifetime. And when he didn't come, some began to wonder and question, even the believers, not the mockers, but the believers of where is he? Where is he? Why hasn't he come? And now here we are. Two millennia later, two thousand years later, and maybe for some of you, you thought the Lord would be back by now, and you've longed for his return. And you've experienced discouragements and heartaches, and like Habakkuk, you've pleaded with God, How long, O Lord? How long will I cry for help and you will not hear? How long, O Lord, will you allow your people to suffer and you will not act? And you've watched year after year as the darkness in this world keeps getting darker and darker. And you might have even asked in the quietness of your heart, why does God allow this? Why does God tolerate this? If God has the power to do something, why does he allow this to continue on? Why doesn't he do something? He's promised to come back. Why hasn't he? In verse 9, Peter answers all those questions. <laughs> he says, first of all, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Now, the word for slow means late or delayed. The Lord is not late. He is not slow. He is not dilly-dallying. He is not distracted. You remember Galatians 4, verse Four, where it says but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law so that we might re- he might redeem those who were under the law. So God does everything in the fullness of time. He does everything on schedule on time. He isn't slow. He isn't early. He isn't late. He is right on time. In Hebrews 10 23, it says that he who promised is faithful. And then down in verse 37 of the same chapters of Hebrews, it says, In a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And so, Peter flatly denies that the Lord is in any way late or slow about fulfilling his promise. He may seem late to the mockers, he may seem slow to some of the believers who had become fearful and worried. But he is not late. He is not slow. He is perfectly on schedule. So God's apparent delay is not due to any failure on his part. And Peter specifically addresses that here when he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And here is the key thought of this whole passage. The apparent delay is not due to a failure. It is due to the character of God. The reason that his coming appears delayed is because he is so very patient for sinners. Last week I had everyone raise their hand who had been saved in the last 15 years and I'd say about 75% of the church raised their hand and I said, look around. Thank God. The Lord did not decide to come back 20 years ago or 18 years ago or 16 years ago when we were not saved. Now, he says he is very patient. He delays and delays and delays. He's delaying the judgment because God is rich in mercy. Now, there are a number of passages that really espouse this truth further for us. I want you to see. Listen to what Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says. Wonderful verse. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Repentance. And Paul is there saying God has actually put his judgment plans into the future in order that in this present time he may exercise patience towards sinners so that they will come to repentance. How gracious is that? Even in Romans chapter 9, verse 22, where we see his justice take center stage, Paul still reveals insight into the character of. Of God. You all know the verse. It says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Even in the sovereign judgment of man, we see a God who still endures with much patience. He's so very patient. And then you'll recall from our time in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, a fascinating verse going all the way back to the time of the flood. And it says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Question, how patient was God in the days of Noah? How long did he wait before he brought the flood? 120 years. Right? 120 years. Noah built the ark over a span of 120 years, and and at least it indicates that during the majority of that time, uh, Noah was also a preacher of righteousness. And God patiently and patiently and patiently kept waiting for men to repent. And then right here in our own chapter, notice 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Wow. It is for purposes of redemption that God is patient. It is purposes of repentance and salvation that God waits. And so the scoffers see the delay as a vice and Peter presents it as a virtue. Now you remember that the day of the Lord is a time of final, catastrophic, worldwide judgment where all the ungodly will eventually be cast into the lake of fire and there we see the justice of God. But on the other hand, we see a God in Joel chapter 2, verse 13 who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. So while God holds in His hand the power to destroy and the power to cast the ungodly into eternal hell, He is also the God who is patient, merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Consider His patience with you. I know God was very patient in my life. He endures patiently the innumerable adulteries, murders, lies, fornications, thefts, deception, blasphemies, debaucheries, defiance, loose lips of the the profane swearer. He endures all of it, and yet he is patient, patient, patient. You had every, every right to consume the sinner the very first time he committed the sin. But God is patient toward you, not wishing, and I would term it like this, for any of his own to perish, but that all of them will come to repentance. And while God is surely patient towards his elect, God is still patient with all. Take the analogy again of Noah. Noah. Was God patient only with Noah and his wife and his sons and and their wives, with his family? Certainly not, for their faith and their salvation certainly took place years before the flood came, and yet the scriptures say the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So God demonstrated a great patience even with the sinners though they would not repent and ultimately whom his justice had to destroy. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, listen to this, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. God by nature is patient, kind, forgiving, merciful, graciously patient, for God is Savior. Luke 3, 13 verse 3, excuse me, is a very interesting verse. Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he's saying the path to... Perishing is the path of an unrepentant heart. The path to damnation is the path of a non-repentant heart, one that rejects the Lord Jesus Christ and holds on to his own sin. Now let's get back to this verse and look at it some more. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Because there are people who look at this verse and say, well, if God doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, then that must mean nobody will perish and everybody will come to repentance. (laughs) And these people are actually referred to as universalists. Universalists. And they believe everybody eventually is going to be saved But if everybody is going to be saved, then all of the teaching in the Bible about the day of the Lord is a lie then. (laughs) Because it says plainly, we saw them text all last week, that when the day of the Lord comes, sinners are going to be destroyed. So how do we rightly divide this text? Well, let me say, first of all, At the cross, we teach and believe in the sovereign election of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to what? The kind intention of His will and to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of trespasses according to my decision? Nope. The Bible says according to the riches of his grace. And so obviously the Bible clearly teaches God sovereign over election, the choosing of his people but we also believe in human responsibility in the sense that uh, all of mankind will be personally responsible for their refusal to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. On judgment day we will be responsible for our own unrepentant heart. We will be without excuse. Now God has to harmonize those two things. I can't, but I believe it. And Romans 1.20 says that man is without excuse. Romans 1.19 says, For what can be known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. So we are without excuse. Creation itself testifies to the fact that God exists. And so there's a paradox here in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, obviously, because God does finally yield to his holy justice. There's a point at which his mercy, grace, compassion, forbearance, and patience ends. That's true in every individual's life. God might be patient with a man for 75 years, but at 75 years it ends and he dies without repenting and believing in Christ. God might give a woman 70 years, but at the end of 70 years, it it ends. God might give a civilization 200 years. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. But at the end of those years, God patience runs out, and he wipes out the entire population. And God will give this world so much time But as he said in Genesis 6, verse 3, my spirit will not always strive with man. And after Noah preached righteousness for 120 years, the patience of God had finally come to an end. And when the floods came, their time was finally over. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But he is also just. Before we uh, move on, I want you to see another example of the, the true heart of God. Listen to the loving patience of our Lord. This is from Ezekiel thirty three eleven. The Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house Of Israel. That's the true heart of God. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather he says that the wicked would turn away, turn from his way, and live. One more from Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Here again, we see the words of our Lord as he mourns for unrepentant israel jesus says, oh jerusalem jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it how often would i have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing you were not willing so says peter four arguments for the lord's return the argument from scripture which says he's coming He's coming. The argument from history that says he has judged in the past, he'll do it again. The argument from eternity that says it may seem like a long time, but remember, God is not confined to our limitations of time and space. And then lastly was the argument from the character of God, which says he's coming, he's coming, but the reason he waits so long is because God is so patient. He is so patient to give for sinners, to repent, For it is not his desire, but ultimately it is his degree that the ungodly be damned. So on the basis of those four arguments, Peter then affirms the fact that divine judgment will come. Divine judgment will come, and we see this in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The assurance of divine judgment is clear. Peter says you can mock it all you want to, but it will not change the fact that the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. Now remember, the day of the Lord is the technical term for the culminating judgment of God that comes to end this world as we know it. The Old Testament prophets saw it as a day of unequal darkness and damnation, firing, smoke, a day when the Lord would act in a climactic way to vindicate His name, to judge all of His enemies, to reveal His glory and establish His eternal kingdom. And whether you look at Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 13, Ezekiel chapter 13, Ezekiel chapter 30, whether you look at Joel chapter 1 and 2, Amos chapter 5, Whether you look at that single chapter in Obadiah, verse 15, Zephaniah, chapter 1, Zechariah, chapter 14, Malachi, chapter 4, wherever you look, you will see the unfolding of the final day of the Lord, and you will see it as a time of judgment. Now, some of the prophets indicate that it will have some preliminary signs, and so they write of those. Some speak to a sooner uh, judgment and then one in the fulfillment to come. Some write about it, that uh, what it will be like when it hits, and others write about it, how it will culminate. Others speak of what happens after it's over, but all the prophets see it as a day of judgment and doom. And it's the same for the New Testament writers as well. Um, whenever the New Testament writers speak of the day of the Lord, it's, it's a fearful term. It's catastrophic judgment. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verses 2 through 3, Paul writes, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains, upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. It's a time of of devastation and destruction. And then there are texts like Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 1, Paul talks about the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, verse 2, he gives warning. There will be troubling times ahead. Don't be deceived in thinking that the day of the Lord has come. He warns them in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed in the son of destruction. And so we see, even in the first century, believers being Warned about the last days of this great falling away that will occur. And by the way, we see that now. Earlier in the uh, same epistle, back in chapter 1, it describes the event in verse 7 clearer. Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It's always described as a time of great judgment. So Peter says the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, like a thief is going to come... Um, suddenly and without warning it'll be a, a surprise arrival suddenly for many unexpected disastrous to the unprepared no one knows the day or the hour it's not for us to know that but all generations live in the sense that it could come at any moment any time so Peter says it's coming it's coming it's coming it's in, it's in that embeddable and, and then he describes its it's character as he continues in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And This is a dramatic picture. If you turn to the book of Revelation, we get some more detail about that. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 16, uh, sorry, in verse 6, verse 14. I'll give me a moment to turn there and I'll get a drink. Revelation 6, verse 14, it says the sky, look at this, was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out from out of their places. The whole earth and sky is an upheaval. Verse 13, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a, a great wind. And then earlier in the second half of verse uh, 13, And the sun became black, as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The heavens just completely begin to disintegrate. And when he refers to the heavens, he means the physical visible universe, the the vaulted expanse, the sky with all the things that are in it. In primitive Hebrew, it doesn't appear that they really had a concept or even a, a word for universe. They simply spoke of it as the heavens. But here it means the whole universe will pass away. In fact, Isaiah 34, verse 4, it says, all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine. Can you imagine it just unroll, you know, imagine rolling out a scroll and letting it go and it just rolls up. That's, wow. The whole universe just, the Lord holds the whole thing by the power of his word. He speaks and the whole universe just rolls up the sky and it does it with a roar. Interesting word. It means like with a whizzing or a whizzling. It's it's like a crackling uh, sound of something that's burning, being consumed with fire. The noise will be deafening. The roar of fire unlike anything you've ever heard before. So that's a serious, serious flame. And that's what Peter says. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The heavens are going to go and so is the earth. The whole, the physical, natural earth as we know it, the whole ecosystem, social system, it will all be consumed. And in that final moment, the whole solar system, the, the galaxies, everything will be abolished. All the, all the elements which will make up the, the whole physical world and universe will just dissolve it will just utterly melt away just an astonishing picture but it doesn't end in destruction for those chosen by God after the great white throne judgment God will destroy the universe he'll set up a new heaven and a new earth after the judgment and, and we'll see more about that as we go but the wrathful voice of God is going to come in the day of the Lord it is inevitable The mockers may mock. They're wrong. They may argue from a viewpoint of emotion or or feeling. They may argue from a viewpoint of morality, not wanting any accountability for their sin. They want to live the way that they want to. They may argue, argue foolishly, blindly, willfully from some revised idea of history, but their arguments are all foolish, Peter says. The day of the Lord will come. And when it hits, it will destroy suddenly like a thief. And God will establish an entire new heaven and new earth wherein dwells only righteousness. Righteousness. He's coming, and he's coming right on schedule. Next, we're going to find out what the implications of all this means for our lives. And we'll continue in that next week. If you need prayers this morning, I want to invite you. You're welcome to come forward as we stand and sing. And let's praise the Lord. I can only imagine what it will be like. Thank you.